Section 7 of the Empresses of Constantinople. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Empresses of Constantinople by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 6, Part 1 The Most Pious Irene. The revolution which drove Martina from the palace set upon the throne a boy of eleven, Constans II, the wife whom he afterwards brought to share his splendor, and by whom he had three children, is not known to us even by name. We know only that when his crimes or violent indiscretions had rendered him so unpopular that he passed to Sicily, he sent for his wife and children, the senators, however, had no mind to see the court transferred to Italy. They detained the empress and her children, and, as the life of Constance was shortly afterwards ended by his bath attendant felling him with a soap-dish, the unknown empress sank into complete obscurity. His son and successor, Constantine the Fourth, had so clear a title to the charge of brutality that no historian has ventured to dispute it, and we will trust that the Empress Anastasia, whose features and character are unknown to us, did not greatly lament the loss of a consort who could slit the noses of his royal brothers and castrate a noble youth for deploring the execution of his father nor can we think that she was happier under the reign of his son, Justinian II, since the only reference to her in the chronicle of his reign is that his favorite minister, a Persian eunuch, had her flogged in the sacred palace on one occasion. Her third and last appearance in history is even more tragic but a new and quaint type of empress meantime enters the scene and in order to explain her arrival we must glance for a moment at the adventures of justinian the second attaining the purple at the age of sixteen justinian seems at first to have sinned chiefly by the very natural blunder in a young man of admitting corrupt and extortionate ministers a usurper then took advantage of his unpopularity to dislodge him from the throne and sent him with diminished nose into exile at Cherson on the Black Sea. Within a year Justinian had the satisfaction of hearing that his enemy had been forced by a new usurper to retire also with diminished nose, into the tranquil shade of a monastery, and he proposed to regain his throne. The authorities of Sherson, however, decided to conciliate the new emperor, Tiberius III, by sending Justinian to him in chains, and he fled to the land of the Khazars, who dwelt on the other side of the Black Sea. The Khazars were a wild Asiatic people, akin to the Huns, whose manners had been somewhat softened by contact with the Byzantine civilization and their king, or Shagan, not only received the fugitive with cordiality, but bestowed on him the hand of his royal daughter. Theodora, a name conferred on her, no doubt, by Justinian in memory of the consort of his great predecessor Justinian I, can hardly have boasted much beauty being a Khazar, but she was not without spirit and character. 
She presently learned that her father had been bribed by Tiberius to surrender Justinian, and she warned him of his danger. Sending in succession for the two high officials who had been charged to arrest him, Justinian strangled them with his own hands and fled to Bulgaria, leaving his wife and infant daughter in the care of her father, who very amiably sheltered them. Within a year the faithful Theodora learned that she was mistress of the mighty city of the Greeks. Justinian had offered the hand of his daughter, then one year old, and some more solid advantages to the king of Bulgaria in exchange for an army, had laid siege to Constantinople, and had, with a few soldiers, crept through the water conduit into the town and taken it. The appalling vengeance he wrought on his enemies and on the inhabitants, even to the babies of Cherson, may be read in history. It is, comparatively, an amiable trait in his character that he did not forget the yellow-skinned princess who had lightened the dark hours of his exile. She was brought with great pomp to the city, bringing two children to their truculent father, was crowned empress, and enjoyed for a few years the undreamt-of splendor of the imperial palaces. Happily, she did not live to see the end of her husband's savage vengeance. When a storm had threatened the life of Justinian on the Black Sea, his companions had urged him to disarm the divine wrath by forgiving his enemies. If I spare them, may God drown me here, he had replied, with more vigor than elegance. His orgy was closed by the inevitable assassination. We catch a third and last glimpse of the Empress Anastasia at this point. The brood of Justinian was to be exterminated, and soldiers went to the palace of Blackernay in search of Theodora's boy. When they burst into the chapel, they found the aged grandmother sitting on guard before the sanctuary. The six-year-old boy clung to the altar with one hand and held a fragment of the true cross in the other, while his neck was loaded with the most sacred relics. But Byzantine piety was of a peculiar nature. The soldiers brushed aside the old lady, stripped the boy of his relics, took him out to the gate, and cut his throat like a sheep. Three emperors followed in six years, and came to violent ends. Then Leo the Isaurian, 717-740, came upon the throne, and inaugurated the famous crusade of the iconoclasts, or breakers of images. His wife Maria is known to us only as having received the title of empress in 718, as a reward for bringing Constantine Capronimus into the world, and having scattered gold from her litter among the people as she was born to St. Sophia, for the baptism of that ill-regulated infant. Another Asiatic princess then comes faintly into view, when, in his fourteenth or fifteenth year, Constantine marries a Khazar king's daughter. The religious chroniclers would have us believe that she was endowed with much learning and piety, but the only ground of this remarkable claim is that she did not agree with her husband, as few women did, about the propriety of breaking the virgin's statues. After eighteen years of patient expectation, she ushered a feeble infant, Leo the Fourth, into the distracted empire, and quitted it herself shortly afterwards. 
the empress maria succeeded to her place in the arms of constantine in seven fifty and in seven fifty seven she left that very doubtful felicity to the empress eudochia eudochia was pious and fertile it is all that we know of her nearing her first delivery she summoned the holy nun and thusa whom her husband had had publicly stripped and whipped a short time before and in virtue of her prayers presented constantine with a son and daughter simultaneously shortly afterwards four other boys followed and eudochia having behaved as a good empress ought and furnished no material to the biographer followed her two predecessors meantime the famous irene had entered the story of byzantine life and once more we are in a position to make a satisfactory study of byzantine feminism in the year seven sixty eight seven years before the death of constantine the fifth constantinople was delighted with a succession of festivities on first april eudochia was after ten years of industrious maternal activity crowned empress or augusta in the banquet room of nineteen tables with its golden roof and golden vessels in the palace on the following day which was easter sunday her eldest sons christopher and nicephorus were made caesars and her third son nicetas received the heavy title of nobilissimus most noble which gave the six-year-old boy a gold-embroidered mantle and a slender jewelled crown so that the procession to church was headed by two emperors constantine and young leo two caesars and a most noble all flinging gold and silver among the enchanted mob but leo was now approaching his twentieth year and must marry the idea was mooted first of asking the hand of the daughter of pepin the frank but it is said that the western christians frowned on the kensitite heresy of the eastern court so constantine then resolved to seek a beautiful and eligible lady within his own dominions and it was announced in the late summer that the prize had been awarded to irene the pride of athens irene was then a beautiful talented and spirited girl of seventeen summers as she had apparently no ancestors and as athens had become at that time a drowsy and almost obscure provincial town we must suppose that as she herself afterwards acted imperial commissioners had been sent far and wide to examine candidates for the vacancy irene's radiant greek beauty robust health and lively intelligence pleased the officials an imperial galley brought her to the palace of hyeria on the asiatic side her qualifications were found to be adequate there was one difficulty and irene gave early proof of her skill in casuistry in surmounting it not only was irene a woman and all women were on the side of the virgin but athens was conservative in religion constantine demanded an oath and irene with a large mental reservation to use the elegant phrase of the experts in such matters swore on the holy cross that she would not favor the worship of images her story will turn largely on the question of iconoclasm and a few words on the subject may be useful 
the real origin of leo the Isaurian's zeal against statues is obscure historians suggest the influence of the purer religion of mohammed but there was no cultural contact of mohammedanism and christianity and an Isaurian soldier would hardly be the man to experience it if there were when we find that the iconoclasts went on to reject relics and monasticism and treat the virgin in very cavalier fashion i suggest that it was a protestant or rationalist movement a spontaneous protest against the excessive superstition clerical wealth and monastic parasitism of the time it took strong root in the army, and we may assume that the permission to rifle wealthy churches, rather than any leaning to metaphysics, explains this zeal for advanced theology among the troops. Constantine, like his father, pressed the reform ferociously, and as monks and women were the chief recalcitrants, he fell upon the monks with grim determination. Their beards were oiled and fired, they were gathered in masses with nuns and told to marry each other as many did they were forced to walk round the hippodrome to the delight of the mob arm in arm with prostitutes even the reluctant patriarch of constantinople was indelicately mutilated driven on an ass round the hippodrome under a fire of spittle and replaced by an obedient eunuch this was the iconoclastic world into which the athenian girl entered armed with a mental reservation from the palace of hyeria she went at the beginning of september to constantinople and her betrothal to leo was celebrated in the church of the lighthouse three months later her probation was complete on 13th December she received the wonderful crown of the empresses, with its cascades of pearls and diamonds, in the gold-roofed banquet-room, and was married in the chapel of St. Stephen within the palace. Constantine remained on the throne for seven years, and Irene behaved and avoided images with the most exemplary propriety until in seven seventy five the old emperor joined his father in the eternal home to which the religious chroniclers luridly consign him still for some years irene gave no sign of strong personality unless we may see as is probable her influence in the events of the following year she had borne a son in 770, and in 776 Leo was urged to admit this boy to a share of the empire. The emperor was delicate, possibly consumptive, and it will be remembered that he had five half-brothers, who offered rich material for intriguing eunuchs and discontented nobles. Irene was now a young woman of twenty-five, of strong and subtle intellect, and well acquainted with Byzantine history. Her obvious interest was to secure the succession for her son, and exclude the children of Eudochia. Leo at first demurred to the crowning of the boy. He submitted that, if he died, the ways of Byzantium made it not unlikely that the child would be murdered. He was answered with an assurance that the whole court and city were prepared to swear the most solemn allegiance to his son, and in the spring of 776 he prepared to associate the younger Constantine in his imperial power. 
it was becoming difficult in pious constantinople to devise an oath sufficiently sacred to be taken seriously and leo exacted that all orders of the citizens should swear by the cross on its most solemn festival and then place a written record of their oath on the altar of the great church on good friday therefore the officers senators courtiers and various corporations of workers and idlers in the city swore their mighty oath by the cross to know no sovereign but constantine the sixth and on the following day when the last son of eudocia eudosimus was made a most noble the written oaths were laid on the altar to be carefully guarded by the patriarch for a few years on easter sunday constantine was crowned in the hippodrome in the early morning and the glittering procession of emperors caesars and most nobles moved to the church followed at a modest distance by irene and her eunuchs and women Twelve months later, the imperial family and the higher orders met in the gorgeous hall of the Magnora Palace for a different ceremony. It had been discovered that the Caesar Nicephorus had conspired with the eunuchs and officers, and when Leo announced the details, there was no trial to the audience. It was at once decided that he be degraded to the rank of the clergy and banished to Sherson one rival was put out of the way and leo continued to play with his caskets of jewels his favorite occupation and irene to cultivate her policy of waiting in her service was the eunuch storasius a genius of intrigue and counter-intrigue whose watchful servants could at any time detect or manufacture a conspiracy on one occasion only, towards the end of her husband's short reign, does Irene seem to have been indiscreet, though the indications are rather obscure. Historians put it to the account of Leo that under him the fierce persecution of image-worshippers relaxed, but the question might be raised whether there was much occasion for persecuting. It is said that Irene secretly venerated images in her apartments, and had about her a group of confidential devotees, waiting for the death of Leo, and the story runs that Leo, hearing of the conspiracy, forced his way into Irene's apartments, and discovered two sacred statues hidden under a cushion. Whether or no it is true that Irene calmly lied, or made another mental reservation, and disowned the figures of Christ and his mother, it is certain that in the last year of his life Leo had a fit of iconoclastic wrath, and numbers of palace officials and nobles were shaved into priests, dragged ignominiously round the hippodrome and forced to exchange the gilded service of the empress for the austere service of the altar in view of this it is not surprising that when leo died a few months later there was a faint rumour that irene had poisoned him though the more religious chroniclers tell us that in his infatuation for jewels he had taken from the church the rich crown which maurice had suspended over the altars put it on his sacrilegious head which at once broke into fiery carbuncles and perished miserably 
we may take it that the delicate constitution of leo the fourth came to an end after a reign of four and a half years in seven eighty and the empress irene entered upon her long prosperous and blood-stained reign end of section seven